John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 474.1S1013, certificate number 45561, flagpole sitters. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> Did you do the ice bucket challenge? I never did the ice bucket challenge, and I have no regrets. Did someone challenge you and you just ignored them? Maybe. Is that like like stopping a chain letter? One guy didn't dump ice (laughs) over his head, and the next day his sister got run over by a dump truck. Yeah, your mother will die in her sleep tonight. Well, I hope there's not any kind of delayed effect. But do you remember? Did someone call you out? The ice bucket challenge worked where... Someone did the ice buck challenge. Well, and, then, and and just to recap for the future, it was uh, we could cure Lou Gehrig's disease if people dumped a bucket of ice down their backs or yeah, over their head or something. You dumped some ice on your head. And then as you're standing there shivering, you call out other people in your circle to do it. Who you want to suffer as well. And I don't know how that translated to, to curing Lou Gehrig's But it was, for, it was for ALS or something, some, right? Some, yeah, there was some sense that it was on behalf of something, but I don't remember anybody saying, just send money. That's because the most important uh, way to solve any social ill is awareness. <laughs> awareness. The problem, ALS has not been cured yet just because awareness. awareness. You know, my mom always said when elementary schools would have like auctions or spring bake sales... That involved like a, a bunch of performance, you know, some ma- hoops. making some things, showing up at the thing. She would say, just tell me how much money you want. I will give you whatever amount you ask for. Just don't make me bake anything. My son's old elementary school, I think it was his elementary school, actually sent home a letter saying, we know you don't care about the bake sales and the car washes or whatever. Here's the number. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and I was like, this is my favorite thing ever. Although I think there are a lot of people that love baking, love spending, you know, five hours baking some cupcakes that sell for $7. Do they love dumping ice on their head? Well, I never understood the ice bucket challenge and I got called did out do, a couple of times. Did you do it? No. <laughs> I was like, don't be ridiculous. I'm not going to dump a bucket of ice water just because I think the bass player of Death Cab for Cutie called me out. 
I call you out, John Roderick, to dump a bucket of ice on your head. It's like the like, purge or something. Why should luck. he have that power? Yeah, he doesn't. He didn't. It turns out it he does turn, not. Turns out a lot of people, were, I think, were using just warm water and fake ice cubes because you know they've got those fiberglass or whatever ice cubes they are. Do you really think people did that? Reusable ice or cubes. Is that just a Ken Jennings? I know conspiracy. for a fact that people were using warm water and warm those reusable water. ice cubes. Because why wouldn't you? I did participate in a ice bucket challenge though because my daughter's mother was called out by someone at her work and she felt work obligated to show up for the ice bucket challenge so she ice bucket challenged ice bucket fulfilled and i stood there in support i think maybe i had a towel i'm not sure i was there for yeah, who was the real hero there yeah, i know it was you right let's ask ourselves that every time uh did I, you i would say going to anybody's work party for me would be an ice bucket challenge you know I did my part. Did you ever do one of those fad social media infection type things? Well, I mean, do you count like social media joke formats or memes? No. Because, but like planking, did you ever do planking? No. I'm, I'm the wrong age yeah. to do any of the participatory stuff. But when you think about it, like any kind of you know, the joke format that's going around today, the meme that's going around today, that's not too right. different than than any kind of uh, hula hoop type fad. Right. Is this a loss meme? Did but you ever loss meme? I did loss meme. <laughs> and I, I, I butterfly memed. Uh -huh. And these are things that would make no sense to me, you know, until the minute they were explained. But then suddenly it was like, oh, like, I would... Oh. I would like to show my mastery of this. Yes, and I it, too am a lost memer. And it has no ice in it. So, sure. To futurelings listening through their antennae. Or in a week from now when no one remembers <laughs> any of this stuff. <laughs> These were very simple ways that you could communicate that you were a person of your time, a member of your time so, and place. Something you never have to prove. When I see someone around here in the year of our Lord 2019, the one thing I assume is that they are a person of this time and place. Yeah. I'm, I'm never like, are you a time traveler from like the Napoleonic era? But are they a influencer? Right. Are they a social media maven of some kind? That's what you need to prove. It shows some kind of casually woke uh, sensibility and, and that you're down. Like, you're although down. I'm a 45-year-old dad, I can deploy the lost meme yeah. or I can... Uh, correctly ask my kids to spill the tea about something. And, oh yeah. And this is is that tea? And it's this is tea. Yes. And appropriating <laughs> um, black and gay slang is a, just a huge part of my life now. <laughs> it always has been. <laughs> it's pretty much my identity. Yeah. I, uh, during the indie rock years, there was a fad briefly that has to have come out of frat culture, but somehow it got into rock <gasps> culture. It infected the drama club kids in indie rock? It did. And it was called icing. Which is, if you came up with a Smirnoff ice, a bottle of Smirnoff ice, which was briefly a kind of yeah. wine cooler, vodka cooler, like a soda pop with booze. Because vodka doesn't taste like anything, so right. let's have, uh, you yeah. know. Let's put some sugar cranberry. dunk in it. Uh, if, you, if you approached a person and knelt dramatically in front of them, like, uh, like as though you were pledging your fealty to them, and held up a bottle of Smirnoff ice light then or whatever. Then you're married. You would have iced that person and then that person would have to drink an entire bottle of Smirnoff ice. These do just seem like playground yeah. games. Yeah. We're playing Smirnoff tag. <laughs> exactly. The rules are. <laughs> and it actually was a thing that at least for one summer at all the festivals, people would 
And it, the part of it was you're not expecting to be iced. No one expects to be iced. No one expects the, the Polish Inquisition. And so you turn around. Oh, you just got iced. Ha, ha, ha. Lol. And now you have to drink your ice. There's no way to avoid it. I well, feel like there's no level of, of, of a situational awareness that can keep people from Smirnoff from icing you. you. Right. And the game is, you know, you, if you see somebody coming with a Smirnoff ice in their hand, you can, I guess, predict you're gonna about to be iced and like cast a a spell of protection against being iced or I, somehow you can, you if can I roll say, a 15 or higher, come on. Yeah. Right. If you make the sign of the cross, you're uh, impervious to being iced. I of course was impervious to being iced because I don't drink alcohol. So people would ice me all the time. Like, ah, you're iced. And I would be like, ha ha, you're faced because I'm not going to drink it's your, hilarious. Dumb, your dumb booze. It just, you've revealed that it's all a, a gag. Yeah. You can't do anything. It's all, me. it's all fake. What are you going to do? Kick me out of indie rock? You know, this is now a trope of horror movies that, um, you know, things happen to people in chains. And I think it's all just based on this idea of um, some stupid meme or fad coming for you, except to make it scary, you can't get out of it. Oh. When the Babadook or the It Follows or whatever comes, you can't be like, guess what, buddy? <laughs> I don't. I, I've been sober for 18 years. Woo! <laughs> I don't recognize the lost <laughs> meme. I'm a non-Babadookist. Well, in... This this isn't a new phenomenon. Uh, it's just new that it's young, that it can be so young people doing stupid things. Young people doing stupid things with, in it well, because they have access to alcohol <laughs> in a kind of viral way. Uh, but it, now there are no stakes, right? If you refuse to be iced, then the person moves on. If you don't participate in the lost meme, nobody notices. But in the past, fads like this would kind of sweep the nation or the world, and the stakes were higher. The stakes were a lot higher because. In order to make an impact, in order to be recognized, in order to be seen, you had to somehow rise above the din. You couldn't just tweet out from your account that has 42 followers and potentially get retweeted by Patton Oswald, and, you know, you're briefly a star. Check out my SoundCloud. <laughs> if you're just sitting uh, at the crossroads of your two local farm roads doing the hula hoop, for 40 hours, no one knows or cares. Some, right? some truck goes by, you know, you see it approach for minutes and minutes and minutes of cloud dust, and then it gets bigger and bigger. And right as it gets to you, you're like, check out my SoundCloud. <laughs> you've got a, You've got a sign there that you keep uh, <laughs> like putting an extra minute on. Like I've been doing this for 42 hours and 13 minutes trying to. So we gave every person, a young person in the world, an audience. What a great idea. I know. What Wasn't could, that smart of us? What could go wrong? Do you remember in the early days of uh, of the internet where it was like, we'll have access to all information and utopia will be delivered unto the world as all ignorance dissipates? <sighs> it's kind of true. I do just go, you know, go down hour-long Wikipedia rabbit holes about, um, you know, mm -hmm. sitcom episodes gone awry right. or, or whatever. Samantha Smith. Yes. But, uh, it, you know. Unfortunately, it has not resulted in all ignorance dissipating. Bowie knew. Did you watch the clip of Bowie in 1999? No. Bowie had something to say? <laughs> Look up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in 1999 he did. Last year, not so much. Look up a clip of Bowie in 1999 predicting what he thinks the internet will do to culture. Oh. It's, uh, it's fascinating. It, and it proves he was not a product of his place in time. He was a space traveler from he the future. always was a space and traveler. And he knew. He was like, there will be a thing called Instagram and... <laughs> <laughs> but the, the fads of the 20th century, you know, they tended to be, uh, they were dance-a-thons. It's very popular to test your endurance. There are all kinds of fads that really are just endurance tests of one kind or another. 
you're creating a format so that people who have no content in their souls can produce <laughs> content. I was talking to somebody who owns a bunch of, uh, like he, he he's a works for the company that owns a bunch of like the improvs, you know, clubs. Right. And uh, there's enough of these places now, enough appetite for for comedy that you just cannot get a good comic in every night of the week. Right. So what it becomes about is trying to templatize comedy so that people can come in and watch some kind of faddish, entertaining thing and not realizing that no one has given them comedy, <laughs> that, no, <laughs> that no art has been created, you know? Have you ever been to a local stand-up show? Uh, yeah. Uh, even before that it had been templatized, uh, my sense was that it was all, I mean, the audience was performing their laughter as much as the comedian. Open mic is certainly one of the templates, but now it's, you know, it's comedy sports. It's different kinds of improv games. Right. He was telling about one they do where it's like, it's called phone surrender or something. Give me your phone where they just take somebody's phone in the audience and project it on the screen. And they like go through your phone and, you know, an MC goes through your phone and at first people are horrified and they're like, I'd never, do, I'd never do this. No, thank you. No. And I would still continue to say that. Yeah. But by the end of the night, they're like... This is the greatest thing ever. Again, unaware that they have not seen nothing has actual ha yeah, comedy right, happen. Right. You know, <laughs> so, and this is how feds work as well. Like, I don't really have anything that I could do for um, twenty hours that would make people pay attention, but I could probably Charleston for that long, right? Or I could buy a, a raccoon coat and wear it. Well, and I, in a way, you could say that like marathons, and in particular these. Um, like actual running marathons? Running marathons are a form of this. Like, can you just, all you have to do is endure this. I mean, you can. You just have to not stop. Only one person wins it, but there are a thousand people in the race and all of them are just trying to be there. Their goal you know? is, yeah, their goal is to not stop. To not stop. That's why when somebody runs a marathon, I think I may have said this before, my favorite thing to be, to say is like, did you win? <laughs> <laughs> bring them back, bring them back to an actual world where, uh, people yeah. are at athletic competition to win and yeah. not to get a bumper sticker. Did you win? With a number on it. And then, you know, you'll get those answers like, well, in my age group, <laughs> what was your age group? My dad, my dad, you've seen him on my piano, right? All those gold medals. Yeah. I have a stack of gold medals that my dad, uh, won in ski racing, uh, because he was 80 years old and there was only one person in his age bracket. <laughs> he's it. So every time he would race, you know, and he's just like careening down the hill, 80 year old man, just barely holding on for dear life. But they'd give him a gold medal because he, he won his class. What if he didn't finish? Would you still get the medal? No, no, that's a, that's a DNF. You don't, uh, you don't get a medal for that. But what if he's the only guy and he DNFs? He should still get the medal. Sorry. What do they do with the medal then? I'm sorry. This, this is going to go to waste. Uh, no, the but medal. We cannot give it to you. The medal goes back into the briefcase for the next race. It, it's not carved in any kind of year specific way. No, 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 no. no. I think the, I think 65 to 70 or, or 50 to 65, like those age groups were still very competitive, but there just weren't that many skiers at 80 years old. And my dad was pretty good. He'd beat those guys. He'd beat the, his challengers. I'm, I'm realizing now that you say that it is crucial to every fad that it pretty much be something everyone can do or yeah, like that, everyone can cram themselves in a phone booth. It you can it doesn't set yourself pleasant. to do it, you know, like yeah. not everybody can survive it, but the era, uh, you know, I think the fifties were a big fad area or a big fad era and, uh, the 1920s were, and it seems to me that this kind of fad comes, it becomes very popular during affluent times. I was about to say, if yeah. the 20s and 50s have anything in common, it's an artificially high level of prosperity that nobody realized was artificially high. Well, and I think that's true of today, too. Although we're very conscious of, of income disparity, we're actually living in pretty fat times that people can sit around loss memeing all day and not have to 
tote any barges or lift any bales. And are you predicting some kind of uh, rude awakening? I think at, there's at, a rude at the awakening end of our, coming, yeah. At the end of our, our complacent Clinton era of lost memes or whatever? I, I feel like your your ability to meme is not going to come in handy in between now and when the future links are listening to this program. The, they have better information than we do, but I feel like they're going to they're going to feel like there was a there's some kind of trough. Thinking about why the 20s were such a fad machine, it's certainly an era of affluence, as you say. Things right. are just going up and up and get better and better. So everybody's got a lot of free time for dumb stuff. Right. There's also the sense that there's not more important things to worry about. When things are good, why not think about raccoon coats and cramming yourself in phone booths? Because the stakes are low. You know? Right. Let's, World ha- let's War, have a good time. World War One is over. We did it. We, we, we did we it. We made the world safe for democracy. The war to end all wars is over. And now it's a 10-year party. That's right. And the, the stock market is climbing. Uh, jazz music is in. Women are cutting their hair and wearing short skirts. So this is a big thing because it's kind of the beginning of youth culture, right? right? Like right. for the first time, y- you know, young women, uh, you know, people of color have an influence on the culture. Uh, young women have an influence on the culture with their kind of uh, flapper trends that break with the past. Right. And, uh, androgyny is popular for the first time. Right. Uh, and motion pictures are now a way to kind of diffuse images of people doing attention grabby stuff all over. Like right. it's, it's on a smaller scale, but we just gave everyone an audience. We have radio now, yeah. record players, uh, but you're right. Motion pictures are uh, in their infancy. For the first time, you can go to a newsreel and see some dumb but attention-grabby thing that some guy in Chicago is doing. Right, see a flapper in action. Uh, this was also an era where sporting uh, clothes oh, that's interesting. became something you could wear, out, like your your classic tennis outfit, which at the time was a white cardigan sweater and a tie and white linen pants. Those were sports clothes that you would only wear on the sporting field. And uh, young people started wearing them in town. And it was shocking. I mean, even the straw boater to wear it in the city was like, he's not in a, you know, he's not wearing a bowler. He's wearing this sporty hat made of straw. Is your sense that this is a, this is an abrupt change that's followed a kind of a long period of stasis where things didn't change that much? Yeah. If you I, think, I feel like that's true, but I don't know enough about it. If you think the, about the sort of matronly fashion of 1910 and compare it to the matronly fashion of 1880, you know, they're, they're it looks the same in my head. And I'm just not sure if that's just me not being knowledgeable. I mean, enough. it changed a little, but long black dresses, wide brim hats. Uh, if hemlines are going up and down, they're going up and down within the same two inch, uh, bounce. Yeah. Right? There was uh, hemlines, I think were always at the ankle, but you had a na- narrow waist and a big bustle was sort of a, you know, it was a feminine style, but one that would reveal nothing, you know, and, and it after the war, shape, but does not actually reveal any shape. And men's clothing became more unstructured. It was just a, it was a frivolous time and a fun time. And it was an era where the college man became a kind of an emblem. Yeah. Is it the rise of college? Is there any kind of like similar to the World War II GI Bill effect where suddenly a new generation rushing to universities all at once powers this? You know, that's a really good question. And I think it is a time of the dissemination of education more broadly. Yeah. Up, up until that point, if you had a fifth grade education, you were suited to go into the world. Uh, and I think there was a, a pride of place that, that higher education now was available to it's the beginning of the professional the class. kind of, yeah, right. you know, you can't just um, be Abe Lincoln and t- go to law school from your cabin or practice law without 
going to law school, just pass a bar to exam. You know, that's, right. that's right. going away. It was, uh, it and, be- and how about this? It's the beginning of, um, sports celebrities, uh, you know, sports heroes as celebrities, you know, nationally known people for doing physical acts. And I think that might power a lot of this kind of fad stuff. Well, I'm not Babe Ruth, but check out me and my buddies in this phone booth. And, and technology allowed you to like, for instance, Charles Lindbergh, he was just flying an airplane. It was basically an endurance it's a marathon. Yeah. yeah. All he had to do was just stay awake for 30 hours. And he had a hard time because staying awake for 30 hours is hard. And he was, he started to hallucinate, but. And especially if you're in an airplane that's going. The thing that makes people fall like, asleep. Uh, do you think he had like a choice of movies? Do you think he was like, <laughs> hmm. Was like, Cameron Crowe's Elizabethtown. Mm. You know, on my earlier flights, we had real silverware and the. The food was a lot better. Now they just give you crackers. Uh, so there were a lot of, all of these I- kind of influences combined to make fads really come alive in the 1920s. And you had, well, for instance, wing walking was a fad. Forgot about wing like walking. Like whoever thought, it, but now we had airplanes and they were open cockpit and it was only a matter of time before somebody stepped out on the wing and then it was only a matter of time before somebody walked along the wing and pretty soon you've got people playing tennis on top of a, of a flying airplane. I like that airplane. one because it's not, it's, it's actually requires skill. Yeah. You know. I don't think that there was a ball in play. I think they just pretended to play tennis on that, on that flight. That's the thing about still photos. You can, yeah. you can hide the ball. And acrobatic airplane flying. There was a lot of kind of stunty stuff, but, but this. The, when we think of 1920s fads, we think of stuffing people in a phone booth, which made another appearance in the 50s. We think of raccoon coats and a sort of that's a college like a like affectation. a yeah like a, a maybe the first teenage. It was before teenagers were invented, but the like boys in raccoon coats and their flapper girlfriends were a um, Saturday evening post trope about callow youth and their crazy Can you fads. imagine these kids today? <laughs> I guess they've got cars too. For the first time, yeah. kids have cars and that's a lot more freedom to, to, you know, go raise a ruckus. Get out and listen to some jazz music. But maybe- And you, you got to do the thing where you have a bunch of champagne glasses stacked on a larger- group of champagne glasses stacked on an even larger group. And then you can just fill them all from the top. Fill them all from the top. And then Cab Calloway comes in in a white tuxedo. And <laughs> I do, I do, I do, I. <laughs> it sounds great, actually. I wish I was there. It does sound fun. And the, and it, I mean, we see it portrayed so often in like gangster movies or um, Roaring Twenties movies where we know that the end is going to be a bunch of uh, Thompson submachine guns shooting up the place and everybody right. breaking up because we know uh, prohibitions on its way. Pro- yeah. Mean, it's it's all, right now. It's all a signifier for unsustainable. Right. You right. Know? The depression is always the end of that film. All these guys, dads are going to be throwing themselves out of windows in five years. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get 
get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. But maybe the kookiest of all the fads of that time was flagpole sitting, which surprisingly swept the nation. And it all was the, it all stemmed from one guy, a man by the name of Alvin Shipwreck Kelly. Shipwreck. Uh, he was in the Navy and, and claimed to have survived the Titanic sinking, although unprovable. That feels like an easily debunked. Like if there's one place you can, you know, put yourself where like five minutes could debunk it, it would be like in a Titanic life. Right. There were manifests <laughs> right. of who was on the boat, but yeah, but he supposedly was survived the Titanic. He was kind of a rough and tumble and fun sort of stunt man type of person who, you know, made a living kind of. Well, like barnstorming stuff or was he actually in movies doing stunts, flying planes into barns and whatnot. I mean, he was, he was not like a famous stuntman. He was one of these sort of, uh, jack of all trades. Like, what do you got? He did some stunt doubling. He was, a somebody at a County fair who would maybe not eat a thousand sardines, but I mean, no one can eat 50 eggs, but he did. I mean, he worked as a gigolo at one point. He was, a. He was a steeplejack, I bet. And, Ste- I, and oh, I don't even know what that is. He was. He worked at, He worked on cranes at a certain point. Like he, he, knew, he was a veteran. He'd done, a, he'd done it all. But he was dared by a friend, either someone bet him to do it or dared him to do it, uh-huh. uh, to see if he could, you know, climb up and sit on the top of a pole. And his parents should have been, now Alvin, if all your friends climbed up and sat on top of a high dangerous pole, would you do it? And he was already up the pole. He didn't even have time. He, he couldn't even hear his mother's remonstrations. Uh, but he did. In 1924, he climbed up on top of a, of a pole and sat there for 13 hours and 13 minutes. That seems like a long time if you're the first person to just discover. Because if you had asked me, hey, is it even possible to climb a flagpole and sit on it? I might say, no. I don't, right. I don't even know if that's possible. You would say, I don't want to. <laughs> But I like if I had not known that this was a fad, I think I might think no, you can't you can't climb up a flagpole and sit on it. It's too small on top, much less thirteen hours. Yeah, well, and I think you can take up a, and I'm not sure on that first flagpole climb whether he took up uh, like an inflatable donut or something to <laughs> a little hemorrhoid to rest upon. Donut. But you know, if you think about uh, kids in the tropics who are climbing coconut trees all the time, it's not. It's a skill set that we don't have as much, but I think climbing a tree or climbing a pole was something maybe more common back when there was less TV, less on TV. I watched, I did watch it. I watched a Samoan guy climb a palm tree over, I was in Hawaii with the kids and we we watched him do the little show. And uh, it really was like you're watching a special effect because this is not a skill we need anymore and it seems terrifying, but uh, I think if if you you started, if you started climbing palm trees when you were five years old, by the time you were 30 years old, it would have been something you'd know how to do. It's but. the kind of thing where, um, you know, every day you lift a pony. Right. So every day you start <laughs> with a little palm tree and as the palm tree grows. <laughs> Pretty soon you can lift a horse. Well, and also in the era of sailing ships, you know, the Oh, sure. 200, Climbing up years. things was like your number one job skill. Yeah. And, he, and there was a job where the, you sat in the poop 
nest, the, the crow's nest. That's the poop nest. The poop nest. The crow's poop nest. <laughs> it is a poop nest if you're up there for 13 hours, I guess. And you're at the end of a pole, right? Just barely sort of holding on. Although I don't think I want a guy up in the poop nest named Shipwreck. Right. It seems like a real, he needs a better nickname if he's going to be in the Navy. I think Shipwreck was a nickname he probably got after he uh, matriculated out of the Navy. I hope in the Navy they called him Alvin, safe arrival in Port <laughs> Kelly. They probably called him the Bandit or maybe uh, <laughs> maybe Maverick. Yeah, uh, they probably called him Maverick. Alvin and Maverick Kelly. Alvin and the Chipmunks Kelly. But for whatever reason, him, uh, Alvin sitting up on the flagpole really captivated people's attention in this 13 hours. Well, sure. Because you don't want to miss the end. You don't want to miss the end. And it immediately spawned at first a local fad and then a fad that swept the nation because people wanted to see, well, he's been up there 13 hours. I bet I could stay for 15. It's the classic Simpsons thing of, uh, look, it's Bart and he's doing stuff. Yeah. And then people just stand and look at the guy. You probably go and come back. Oh you, yeah. You don't stand all 13 he's not hours. Doing, he's not doing, well, uh, I'm talking about the, 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 the spectators. spectators. Right. Because he's not uh, doing anything entertaining. I think you, well, in fact, he did. He stood up there, because he's a stuntman, he stood up there and uh, they say subsisted on bourbon and cigarettes the whole time. <laughs> and who knows, maybe he was juggling eggs. But it is the type of thing you'd see him on your way to work and then you'd stop back by at lunch to check out what was happening and right. you'd see him on your way home. But no one knows how long you're going to sit up there. So you could potentially sit up there for 75 days. You're not going to just stand there and watch that. No. But it became a nationwide fad. People started doing it all over the place, climbing much taller poles. Pe some people were flagpole sitting on poles that could not be described as a flagpole, nine feet tall. Or And for our listeners in the future who do not use the English measurement system, but are using meters... And you think they have meters? Meters will survive I'm, I'm the sure, apocalypse? Well, I'm sure that meters will survive. If anything survives, meters will survive. They're up, uh, they're up poles that are, what, four, five meters tall, six meters, how tall's, seven, eight. How tall is a flagpole? Ten like, uh, Outside of school. A flagpole outside of school is what, 20 feet? It's got to be more than 20 feet. Hang on. I'm going to look up how tall is a flagpole. Is there like a flag desecration issue here? I mean, you there can't. are no flags up the flagpole. But then you have to find a vacant flagpole or you have to pull down old glory to do so your, they say here for your own glory. Apparently, you need to select a flag according to the size of your flagpole. Oh, yeah. This is something that never occurred to me. You but don't you, want a giant flag on a little tiny pole. You'd look like a fool. You would, right. And if it's a big flag on a small pole... So if you have an 11 meter tall flagpole, your flag needs to be 180 centimeters by 300 centimeters. So they're that's saying- a, That's a quite a big flag. They're saying you need a big flag. You don't put a small flag up a tall pole, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, you're going to run it up there and see who salutes. And in the case of Alvin Shipwreck Kelly, he ran himself up there and people And saluted. people did salute. He became a celebrity. And so people would sit up on top of flagpoles for, you know, increasing amounts of time, and, and 20 hours. Paint a picture for me. He's got a, he, he, he brings some kind of platform. He brings a little platform or they build a little platform on top of the pole uh, where you can, you can actually sit. You're not just sitting on the, the pointy end of a post. You've got to climb up a flagpole, which seems hard. 
I wonder if he's got any kind of gear. Nope. It seems like it's just, he's if just you're got a shinny up there. I don't think this is flagpole sitting is not a thing that a six foot four, 250 pound person like myself would easily do. I think it's much better suited for someone who's five, two and 120 pounds of super wiry muscle. You can tell just looking at a playground, who's got that kid. Who's the little acrobat, the kid that's always just climbing up door, you know, my brother would always just climb up on the inside of door jams and yeah. he would just be sitting at the top of the door jam like Spider-Man. Yeah. I'm like, what are you doing? My uh, daughter has a little friend who, when he was two and a half, I turned to his mother and said, oh my God, your son is a skater. And she said, I know, don't say anything. And I was like, there's no escaping it. Well, now he's seven and a half years old and he is a freaking skater. This kid He's, he's like your brother. He can sit on top of a door frame. He's doing parkour already. My daughter was always the kid who was just bewildered and um, amazed at people her age who were just doing, you know, flips on the monkey bars. Yeah. You know, and she's hanging out with two hands. She's the kid hanging out with two hands being like, I need to get down. Help me get down. Yeah. I think she's aware that that's her lot in life, that she will never be the monkey bar kid because you know, you know immediately. I was the kid sitting on one end of a seesaw with no kid on the other side. <laughs> As the sad Charlie Brown theme <laughs> <Yeah>. plays. <laughs> and so, and and up there, uh, like if you're up there long enough, I mean, how does he use the restroom? Well, a different people had different styles, but um, he had a system where there was a tube and he would- <laughs> It's uh, an astronaut. According, according to his biography, he would turn away from the crowd- which I well hold on yeah I know I imagine <laughs> is this not a performance in the round it has to be right <laughs> so there couldn't be like some pie shaped area on the ground that they had fenced off where it's excuse like excuse me don't stand this here. is where you can see uh, Alvin's little uh, flagpole this is pee area <laughs> but he would turn and and use his tube and the tube went all the way down into a hole in the ground and I. I didn't, I'm trying to imagine what the tube was made of. Do you think of. today there's some flagpoles that are still equipped with urine tubes? I don't uh, think so, but, but. It's, it's gotta be up to code. You gotta have a drain pipe. Like if you're sitting up there for 39 hours, you could probably just get away with a, with, with a, one. a urine tube. But if you're up there for, uh, well, in What's the. What's the record? In the end, well, it's very hard to say what the record is, but in the end, Alvin kept, people kept upping the ante uh -huh. and Alvin kept responding to their, their challenge and ultimately in 1929, he's- On the eve of the Great Depression. On the eve of the Great, when this was still like fun time. Imagine it's like the night before. <laughs> it's like- it's Black Thursday Eve And or he's whatever. still up on the pole. But he, uh, in Atlantic City, he sat up on top of a flagpole for 49 days. Okay, 49 days, you probably need to poop. You're going to have to poop at some point. But I think if you're, by the time you're, you've graduated to 49 days, there's actually a platform. They started to build platforms on top of flagpoles. You're still not, it's not like you can, uh, there's not a, like a hut or anything, but uh -huh. you can, there's a, a place to sit. You can stand, you can at wave to the crowd. At night, he's passing down his chamber pot to, to, the, to the promoters who have this thing on. Maybe. And you couldn't, it couldn't possibly be so small a platform that you couldn't lay down, curl up at least and get some sleep. Cause you can't stay 49 days without sleeping. For, uh, for shorter stays, you could probably do the Lindbergh thing and just, um, like I read that they would, some people would put holes in the pole that they would hook their thumbs through. Mm -hmm. And that way, like, uh, they could train themselves to kind of doze. But if you fell asleep, you would immediately feel pressure on your thumb. And that would hopefully wake you up before you ah, <clears throat> went over the edge. I don't know if I could do that. That's not for me. Um, 
So the Great Depression happened and it kind of put a damper on the excitement of flagpole sitting. I'm surprised he got years out of this. Like he, he got years and years out of this career. He did and, and was remembered him. even after his um, heyday as the guy, you know, he continued to kind of get, get little gigs, right? At one point in the late 30s, he was hired to celebrate National Donut Dunking Week by standing on the top of a flagpole on 42nd Street in Manhattan um, on his head wow. while he ate a dozen donuts. I wonder if by then it's kind of a nostalgia act. It's yeah. like, remember, remember Alvin Kelly? Do you like donuts? Well, good news. It's like uh, Big Brother or uh, Dancing with the Stars or something. Let's get this guy back out here. Crazily, he joined the Merchant Marines during World War II. He must have been you wow. know, pretty, yeah. pretty uh, old, wiry guy. And I'm sure he got up on the, on the top of the mast a few times. He claimed that he survived five shipwrecks, two airplane crashes, and three automobile crashes, and a train wreck. And one Titanic. Yeah, and he did claim that he survived the Titanic, but there were no male survivors of the Titanic named Kelly. All, ah. There were there were Kelly survivors, but all three of them were women. So what if there's a possibility that uh, he transitioned sometime between 1912 and... Uh... I think it is less likely than that he was lying. <laughs> uh, and there's al also some... What if he's a trans hero and we're, <laughs> we're robbing that from... We're whitewashing history. I think he would have, I think that would have been part of his uh, fame. I think he would have claimed it if he'd had gone on such one an interesting train wreck, one journey. sex change operation. <laughs> Other people claimed that he was called um, shipwreck because he was an amateur boxer for a time. Oh, and, and, and not a good, good and one. And not a good one. And was so, <laughs> was so bad in the ring, just like staggering around that they were like, yeah, he's sort of like a. So his nickname comes from being the worst boxer and he turns it into a. Hey, by the way, baby, I, uh, I survived the Titanic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the sad thing about Mr. Kelly is that by the fifties, he had faded into obscurity and had become a penniless, like afterthought. There's really no second acts on Omnibus, is there? Like, <laughs> like what, you know, you're, these are shooting stars we talk about, but, uh. Yeah. You don't, you don't come very back often. from your, from your heyday. I guess I like the ones where, you know. After one amazing act, it turns out that, you know, Robert Smalls becomes some amazing local politician. Right. Hero to South Carolina. But apparently Alvin Kelly did not have the wherewithal to... Uh, no, in fact, he died, and I, I, I'm not sure this is ironic or not, but he died by being hit by a car. Oh. Uh, someone so athletic, so lithe, presumably, uh, that he just was walking in the street in Manhattan and somebody, like, a car ran him. Planes and trains, but not automobiles, yeah, huh? Too bad for him. I mean, as somebody who, uh, as somebody who also got a brief moment of spotlight for just doing something annoyingly long, uh -huh. uh, I kind of sympathize with Alvin. It is very hard to peak young. Is there a, um, I have this idea, there's this Buñuel movie about this, uh, hermit who climbs up a pole but for God, not for donuts or whatever. Um, like it's an act of religious devotion to like just flagpole sitter, basically. Well, so is that a thing? You're the suspicion when you go back to um, the initial dare, whoever it was that dared Alvin Shipwreck Kelly to go sit on top of a flagpole, mm -hmm. you would think that they were the genius that invented this, right? It wasn't Alvin himself. It was this wag, <laughs> this barroom wag who dared him to do it. He's trying to, trying to make him do something dumb. But in fact, pole sitting has an ancient lineage and uh, was still a kind of literary trope 
even in the 19th century. Uh, pole sitting is referred really? to in, by Tennyson. It's in Connecticut, Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Uh, it's in Moby Dick. Um, references to... And it's re- re- references to this kind of ancient, uh, like, asceticism? Ascetic pole sitting that all began with a Syrian by the name of Simeon uh, Stylite the Elder. Oh, that's the name of the the Buñuel movie. It's called Simon of Simon of the Desert or something like that. It must be about this guy. Yeah, Simeon, who was who lived in the sort of like three ninety to four ninety era, and he he lived in sort of the area around Aleppo in what's now Syria, mm-hmm. and he was an ascetic. He from a very young age devoted himself to to worshiping God as a monk, but he was so into the mortification of the flesh, so into depriving himself of all of earthly pleasures that he alienated the other monks. (laughs) They're all like, you're a little too into this. Yeah. They were all living in their- You're making us look bad with the the abbot. Super spare little cells subsisting on two grains of rice a day. And Simeon was like, one grain of rice. (laughs) What if there was like really pointy gravel in my little cell? And they're all like, oh, now we all have to do this. And he, so the other monks exiled him. And this was an era, and we've talked about kind of the, uh, this era, we've, we've alluded to it before as a time of decadence in the Eastern empire. Oh yeah. Um, Byzantine empire. Yeah. Yeah, This was a time when, when. Flappers um, and raccoon coats. And the initial Christians were, were very persecuted and saw themselves as a corrective, a necessary corrective for the. These guys who were eating pheasant, hummingbirds stuffed into a pheasant. Right. Stuffed into a. Fezduckens. Right. And so Simeon being pushed out by the monks and kind of, um, very independently tried to put on like thicker and thicker hair shirts, I guess, or no, those would protect him from the elements. So thinner and thinner hair shirts, <laughs> but scratchier and scratchier. Scratchier and scratchier. He's doing a lot of research into what the scratchiest fabrics are. He became fairly popular as a a monk to resolve conflicts or someone that you would go to. He's sitting there trying to pray, trying to mortify himself in front of God. And people were coming to him and saying, I'm having a dispute with my wife. Can you help me solve it? He's like the Judge Wapner of of Syria. Because his asceticism convinces people that he's authentic. He's... he's, uh, This will be the word of God. Nothing nothing interposes itself between this weirdo and divine will. Right. He's not trying to earn any ducats. He's not trying... He he doesn't have a beggar's bowl that he wants me to fill. Doesn't care about ingots. And so he's going to help me you know, solve my, my, my son is a wayward youth and he, I, I'm going to get advice. And he and was- And plus you don't have to pay them. Don't, don't if there's, pay if them. there's anybody, any contractor you're not going to have to pay, it's this guy who, uh, you know, insists on poking himself in the feet every time he <laughs> takes a step because he's got shoes full of uh, kitty litter. Well, he wasn't averse to talking to people and helping them solve their problems, but talking to them all day got in the way of praying. Mm. And he kept trying to- sort of sequester himself from, from his fans. (laughs) And eventually kind of in his ascetic wanderings, he came upon a ruin, a Greek ruin and climbed up one of the, the surviving pillars of the old temple, sat himself on top of the pillar and remained there. They'll never find me up here. And the first pillar was only 10 feet high. It just got him up kind of away from their grubby hands. 
But once he was sitting on top of the pillar, he became now very popular oh, because we've seen flagpole sitting. Because they had maps of the stars pillars That's that they were right. hanging out. And so people now flocked to him and gradually he kept moving to taller and taller pillars until <laughs> he, evolution. until he found like a pillar high enough that no one, you know, that he couldn't be disturbed. Crowds would come and watch, but, uh, he's above the mob. And he allowed people to bring ladders and climb up a ladder to get within earshot of him. And, at, and he would answer their questions or he would, um, consult people, but he remained on top of his pillar for 37 years. I like the idea that it's, it's the first advice columnist. Yeah. It's just a guy sitting on, what if Dear Abby was sitting on a pillar for 37 years? <laughs> Alvin Kelly never came up with this angle. No, well, she was, right? She sat behind the pillar of her desk, which is now owned by Dan Savage. You knew that, right? Oh, yeah, Dan he Savage told me that. Dear Abby's desk. That's fantastic. Yeah. I guess back then when there was no mass media, like, um, well, know, the story of being, of being on a pillar is like having a, having a pseudonym or a, a pen name or a column. It became a, his story swept the ancient world, right? Uh, Simeon Stylites, the elder became a celebrity. And, um, actually the, the religious authorities of his time came and said, they, they came and they were afraid that he was doing it out of ego. They were concerned that this was a performance that was not uh, it does not glorify God. Yeah, not authentic. Well, there's a there's biblical precedent for you know people putting themselves in high places you know as a way of uh, not appropriating but um, installing themselves yeah, themselves as a substituting yeah. for God. It's a it's a Tower of Babel kind of a vibe. But they questioned him and they challenged him, and he revealed that he was he revealed to them or at least satisfied them that he was truly humble, and so they allowed him to continued to occupy this perch, and he became not just a celebrity in his time, but greatly influential in the sort of ascetic movement. Now, this was a, a thing that was happening within the Eastern sphere, right? The Orthodox side of the Christian world. It never became especially popular west of the schism, but it remained very popular in sort of the Rus and the you know, the Ottoman. You're part of the world. Quadrant of the, well, universe. the whole, the whole Balkan yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. That was, and they were what they were there. These people are hermits or hermits who have taken their, uh, Hermitage all the way up to the top of a pole. So his, he had a few, Oh, specifically he had people climbing pillars. Like he him. had a few acolytes. Um, there was a uh, St. Daniel who became, who was sort of sainted as part of this, the outside of Constantinople, went up a pole and stayed there for 30, I guess St. Daniel was on the top of his pole for 33 years. And then St. Olypius. Is this un uninterrupted, by the way? Is that how we're to interpret this? That they, yeah. they never came down there. Their feet never touched the ground. Maybe that's what gives them this air of holiness. They're, they, They're literally untroubled by earthly. They live on concerns. food that is sort of hoisted up to them by a, by a string. But yeah. As, and do they have a little hut or? So as this became more popular in the ancient world and there were, I mean, there were a lot of ascetics sitting on poles, including there were some female, I guess you would say nuns or, or um, people who had devoted themselves in th their entire lives to this kind of privation. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them had huts. You know, these aren't like 
flagpoles, they're pillars, and they did have, you know, little railings around them. I mean, there was enough room up there that you could turn around and sit. I don't know how comfortable you would be. It's, but a, it's a little like three foot by three foot. Yeah, a little platform. Platform. And with ve- with uh, various amenities, but... Uh, it's still very small. You know, that's like a smaller than a, I don't know, hot air balloon basket or... Even thinking about sitting up there for Alvin Shipwreck Kelly's initial 13 hours, I think I would, I would not want to be there anymore. But I'm not also trying to remove all earthly pleasures and devote myself solely to glorifying God. You should be. It's not too late, John. I should. But it is too late for me. I am, I am a confirmed sinner. And have no intention of, I mean, you're right. Absolutely. I could get, I could, you could, could build a pillar today. I could get, you could get a contractor in here today. Struck by inspiration. God, God could come to me through the firmament and say, I mean, podcaster, up on the pillar. Podcaster is one job you could do from a pillar. There's not a lot of them. It's true. You could be a podcast. You can't be a mommy blogger unless I, your kids are up there too. I don't want to go to the potty in a tube. <laughs> I mean, I guess we all do. Ultimately, it all goes down into a tube. Imagine yourself someday in front of the judgment bar and the finger of the Lord points at you and says, John Roderick, why were you not up on a pillar? And you say, Lord, I didn't want to go potty in a tube. I feel like I would be the type that sat on a pillar and dangled his legs off the side <laughs> and, and like had a little fishing pole. Kicking your legs. Yeah. I'd like, I'm like that kid in the DreamWorks uh, pre-roll where he sits on the moon and, and fishes for, I don't know what, good movie ideas. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. It seems boring. Here's here's an issue with Flagpole City for me. Boring. It is boring. I mean, is part of the asceticism that you don't have a book, you don't make up any fun little games involving... Um, license plates or anything. Who knows what's going on inside their minds? You know, the thing about uh, meditating is the goal is to empty your mind. Sure. So presumably, if you're sitting on top of a pole for 37 years, you have succeeded in not thinking about anything, <laughs> right? And, or just Wouldn't saying- would you just go mad, though? Just saying, God, 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 I over mean, and over. Is that really you making you more centered, or are you just going to, I feel like I would just lose it. Well, what's really strange about some of these uh, characters, including Simeon and St. Daniel, and, uh, and the kind of the ultimate expression of that style, which is a, a man named St. Olypius, who was- a kind of like a generation later, he lived from 522 to 640. He lived to be 118 years old, if you can believe the accounts. And he's a, he's a generation later. He's, a generation he's later. He's the LeBron to their Jordan. Right. Um, and he was I, apparently not allowed to build a tower. 
<laughs> by his local constabulary. By his, by his HOA? <laughs> and so he stood for 53 years on his feet. Sleeping on his feet. Living on his feet. But just on the ground. On the ground. Mm. But 53 years. He stood until he could not stand, until his feet gave out, and then lay on his side for 14 more years in the same place. I guess I like that he did something super unpleasant, but without any of the trappings, you know, that pe- might make people interested. Yeah. I mean, that's how you know this guy is really devout. It's like he, the, he doesn't even have a pillar. The ascetics in India who raise one arm and never it never comes down and the arm withers away. There's there, there's kind of a famous guy who his, his uh, sign of devotion was he just raised a, an arm up in the air. I thought I was just because the, the, the yogi never called on him. <laughs> like on the first day. <laughs> On the first day, he has a question, Boo. and the guru's like, what's up with this guy? I'm not calling on this guy. He's like Donald Trump at a press conference. <laughs> so for 30 years, he's just like, uh-huh. But these old saints, they were, they were well-regarded and were consulted by emperors. And they strangely are all reported to have not gone insane, but in fact been very humble, very wise, gave great advice, and, oh, and, and in some cases wrote letters, uh, to, to high mucky mucks from their position up on the pole. I guess it's like when I tell my kids to turn off their phone, I'm like, I, I need you to have less stimulus. This will somehow be good for your brain. If stuff's just not pouring into your eyeballs every second. And, and it, I guess standing on a pillar is kind of an extension of that. It like, certainly focuses your attention more some, than playing angry birds and, and think about abstract or even hypothetical things. And, and this is the wonderful thing about the 19th century is that in the 19th century, there was so much more awareness of the ancient world because there were, I guess, fewer books and certainly fewer video games so that Melville could make a reference to Simeon in Moby Dick and presume the reader, the lay reader would get the reference. Oh yeah. Simeon. Mark Twain, you know, made a joke of it, but assumed that people would understand uh, because. Yeah. Less density of culture means if there's only like every century only brings three new names you have to know. Guess what? Right. They're going to stick around a long time because nobody's replacing them. So you can imagine a world not that long ago where you could say, ha, he's like St. Simeon and everybody would laugh. Do you think in the 20s it would have extended? Like, is there any overlap? Probably the person who dared him to do it had this cultural familiarity with it as an ancient practice and maybe dared Alvin Kelly to do it as a kind of joke in the... aware that Alvin Kelly was the furthest thing from an ancient aesthetic, right? He's sitting in a bar, half cocked. But he has the physical skills for the it. Physical skills. And the guy next to him is like, I bet you can't do a St. Simeon. And Kelly's like, dare accept it. So it's yet another case of modern secular culture, you know, keeping the form of something that came to us via spiritual paths. Right. But, you know, just replacing it with a a terrible boxer. Yeah, the guy just, well, and I think that's probably where uh, icing came from, right? The ancient practice of kneeling in front of someone and saying, you're iced. And the ice bucket challenge. The ice buckle challenge, the sure. The ancient was, practice, when, was, was when an, somebody had lupus, you just <laughs> dunk oh, ice over their head. Well, and that started back in Egypt when the bucket of ice was considered <laughs> uh, to be sacred to God. <sighs> no, none of that is true. But within uh, within our own time, post- World War II, when flagpole sitting was seen as this anachronistic folly. I feel like we've had a, a steep decline. To correct me if I'm wrong, 
we're living in not necessarily a boom time for flagpole sitting right now. Although, weirdly, it persisted as a form of protest. Oh, right. So people climbing trees. Well, and and protest and also, I mean, there there continued to be like people that did it as a sort of novelty attention. Do you remember getter. when David Blaine did it on TV? Like he does these street magic things. David Blaine did a uh, in New York City in 2002, climbed up onto a pole, a uh, hundred feet high in Bryant Park, and he stood up there for 35 hours. Now he didn't have a place to sit. He stood, but had a couple of like maybe small little hand grabs to keep himself from falling off. And a Red Bull. And stood up there for 35 hours and claims that toward the end he was hallucinating and and it got kind of scary. And I think he had the handholds in case the wind picked up or something. But this was, you know, David Blaney kind of stunt where he's testing his his metal. It's funny because it's not telegenic at all. You know, as we've said, it's it's someone not doing something, you know? Well, in 2002, nobody had uh, time lapse on their cell phones. <laughs> right. And now everybody would be standing there like, I'm just going to time lapse this. I'll stand here for 35 hours. I don't think it could even be a thing today because, you know, what we need is the video of him falling or something. Right. You know, it's got to be something memeable, shareable. Somebody just doing nothing for 35 hours. It's, it's hard and impressive, but it's not uh, bite-sized. But David Blaine was following in the footsteps of a lot of people post Alvin Shipwreck Kelly. There was a man named Richard Dixie Blandy. Uh, Dixie in, was his, his nickname. All these people, weirdly, all the famous flagpole sitters have three names, <laughs> like serial killers. It's what's keeping them from shooting the president. It's Alvin Shipwreck <laughs> they, Kelly. They found a hobby. Otherwise, Alvin Kelly would have just um, shot Coolidge. Richard Dixie Blandy was a flagpole sitter that was constantly trying to break the record. He broke his own record several times, 74 days, 89 days, 120 days. No, I mean, all of these are contemporary records, right? I think that, uh, that Simeon has a record of 37 years. That's going to be tough to break. You can't get in, you can't get in the Guinness Book of World Records from ancient Syria. There was, there was nobody there to, to, to validate it and sign the thing. But these, these records that people are getting on a flagpole in the front, uh, in the parking lot of a Pontiac dealership, uh, Richard Dixie Blandy was, um, one of the guys that continued doing this throughout the second half of the 20th century actually died in 1974 when he was, uh, sitting on top of a flagpole that collapsed. <gasps> so he is one of the notable fatalities. And you would think that a lot more people would die doing this. But um, I guess it self-selects for people who are absolutely confident. Like I could not do it. I, I'm afraid of heights. Right. But it, it, it selects for people who are like window washers who are just like, yeah, no problem. Yeah. Unless something goes wrong, I'm fine on this platform. But um, yeah, you got to check out your flagpole, Richard Dixie Blandy. 74. I wonder if I'm a reincarnation of, uh, of him. Yeah, that could, did he die right before you or right after? I'm very interested now in finding out what month he died. A woman named Peggy Townsend Clark in 1964 sat on top of a flagpole for 217 days. I like how there's a woman of it. So women do this, uh, uh, not maybe as often as men, but a, a, a girl by the name of Maury Rose Kirby in 1959 in protest of having been called a juvenile delinquent <laughs> by her mother or by the local juvenile courts. 
uh, climbed up a flagpole and sat there for 211 what? days. What kind of rebuttal is this? Oh yeah, could a juvenile delinquent do this? That's right. I'll show you who's a juvenile delinquent. <laughs> I'll skip school for 211 days. <laughs> I'm not even going to smoke a cigarette while I'm up here. Seems a little counterproductive. 211 days she sat up there angry about uh, being called a juvenile delinquent. I'm thinking now the weather is an issue. I mean, this is a good hobby for San Diego, but... Well, and... and I don't want to do this in Rochester, New York. Surviving the storm, surviving the winter... Um, these are all, and surviving just being in the hot baking sun. I mean, in San Diego, you'd sit up there and you'd have to drink a gallon of water a day. That's true. Um, in the hot sun. Now, what did you find about uh, Richard Dixie Blandy? Is he your, is he your spirit? Did his spirit go from his, but from the foot of his flagpole to? So it died. He died in May seventy four, the very month of my birth, and I can't find a day. I found his, I found his gravestone, but. Um, but it only has the year. Really? Uh, May 6th. So yeah, it appears that he died almost exactly two and a half weeks before my birthday. His soul went immediately into you. It fell straight to the pavement. Through the ground and on its way and found its way to a hospital in Seattle. He was in Chicago. Yeah. Somehow it went, it made its way to a. It went through a series of tubes. <laughs> yeah. It went through his urine tube, which did not collapse and came all the way here. Uh, weirdly, one of the great protest flagpole sitters was a, a, a man by the name of H. David Werder. And H. David Werder, in the early 1980s, was very frustrated by the price of gasoline. <laughs> That's his cause? The price of gas went up from 99 cents a gallon to $1.12 a gallon. And this radicalized him. <laughs> he was furious. And uh, H. David Werder climbed up on a flagpole in November of 1982 and stayed there for 439 days and 11 hours, only coming down in January of 1984. When gas prices dropped. <laughs> and I remember this guy. I remember the day that they, they went up in a cherry picker and pulled him down. Now, he had built a little hut up on top of a, you know, there was a roof and walls so that he could presumably go to the bathroom in his tube without People's, and I'm absolutely certain no one cared after day 20. Yeah. And few people, and he, he was keeping a sign on the outside that was like, I've been here 434 days and the price of gas is too high. I like that, that it becomes a crackpot thing. Yeah. That's who should be sitting on poles. Well, and, and hilariously and wonderfully, H. David Werder, after this 439 days of fame, sitting on top of his flagpole, went on to become a perennial candidate <laughs> Yeah. for Congress in Tampa, Florida, and uh, at one point ran for president. Um, Good poll guy. Yeah, he, um, he was described as like a former trucker, a disabled trucker, and uh, he often- Way to strike a blow for disability, by the way. Yeah, Like right. being on a flagpole for more than a year. He often would run, in, in, uh, run where there wasn't an opponent in the primary. Uh, he would run as a Democrat or run as a write-in candidate. Mm -hmm. And then he would always lose to the Republican. Was he, was he still on the issue of gas prices? Or? He was. He believed it, he, energy independence was his uh, cause. And he was a drill baby, drill Democrat. He wanted mm. to just more oil, more solar, more wind, All everything. the national parks. Um, he, at one point in 2008, ran. He was listed on the ballot as H. David, the flagpole sitter worder. Um and I think he continues to run for office in Western Florida. So if you live down there in the future, 
futurelings, maybe a thousand years from now, H. David Werner is still... Maybe he finally won maybe, something. Yeah, maybe he lives forever. I think it's funny that you don't remember Samantha Smith because that was two people magazine-y, but, uh, but, this but guy, for some reason. <laughs> it's really hard to to avoid the the picture of this guy coming down out of a out of a hut on top of a pole in a cherry picker. I'm sure I looked at it in a dentist's office and went, huh, but it, but it stuck. Awareness. Do you think it's very persuasive for people who are like, actually, I think gas prices are fair. And then you see a guy in a, in a hut on a stick and you're like, like wait a minute. Holy cow, what if they're not? I mean, this isn't like, uh, like an environmentalist up in a tree who's up there yeah, it, to keep he, the tree from being he's not, chopped He's down. not chained to anything. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but there is now actually a monk who is living on a pillar. Where? In our contemporary time, um, in the nation of Georgia, there is an ancient sort of stone monolith, uh, a natural monolith that sticks up kind of in the mountains in central Georgia, uh, that's called the Kachki pillar. And it had an ancient monastery built on top of it. The top of the pillar is probably about the size of this room, right? It's about 14 by 14 okay. or something. And it had a little monastery built on it that had fallen into disrepair and for... Would you have to ladder up to the monastery? Yeah. Well, for hundreds of years, there wasn't a way up to the top of this pillar and it's tall enough. Um, it's like a 40 meter high, 130 foot high stone plinth. No one could get up there. And I'm, I'm sure that some local boys probably clambered up there. But it wasn't until 1944 that the first sort of team of archaeologists managed to get up on top of this pillar because there was a little building on it. I mean, a wreckage How of a little building. How did they get the building there? Were they base jumping in? In ye olde times, in 600 AD, uh, I'm sure some some kid that was used to climbing coconut trees scrambled up there and then threw a rope Dropped down. A rope. And little by little, they built a, you know, a humble little monastery up there. Like kids hauling stuff up a tree to build a tree house. Right. Uh, and... It turned out when the archaeologists got up there in 1944, they discovered that it had been occupied by a stylite, uh, someone that was sort of contemporary of St. Olypius. And this is, of course, in the, the sort of Eastern Orthodox universe. Mm -hmm. And there were still the bones of a stylite who had died, he died there, up there in his monastery. And of, I, probably the last stylite died and had thrown down the rope or something. I mean, nobody could get back up there. And so it just, it just sat in the weather for hundreds and hundreds of years or a millennia even. But in the nineties, there was a kind of renewed interest in going up and figuring out what was happening here. And a monk by the name of Maxime, Maxime Kataradze is, uh, Georgian. is a, this Georgian monk who had lived, um, a wayward life had been a druggie and a and a rock and roller. He'd worked for a while as a crane operator in the Soviet Union, and when he did it, construction jobs are really radicalizing a lot of our pillar sitters. They really do. He's like, I could do that. <laughs> uh, he decided to devote his his life to God, and he has now reoccupied the the tiny little monastery on the top of the Kachki pillar, where he remains to this day. And there's a, there is a, a larger monastery for, for wayward boys at the foot of the pillar and they support him. They send up food in a little, in, on a little crank. And they have to do something with his poop. And there is a very, very tall rickety ladder and he comes down 
I guess, once a week to talk to the boys, talk to pilgrims that <laughs> like come to visit him. strange kind uh-huh. of stuff. <laughs> and then up the ladder he goes, and he says that the day he can no longer climb down the ladder, he'll just stay up there till he dies. He'll leave, he'll leave his bones up there as yeah. well. And he wants his bones interred in the sepulcher with the bones of the previous stylite who lived there. So pillar sitting seems to be like an eternal expression of, of faith in God. There's always going to be people out there who just want to be at the top of a tall pillar. Who want to actually, who want to get away from their fans. (laughs) (laughs) They're not sick, but they're not well. (laughs) (laughs) And that concludes flagpole sitters. Entry 474.1S1013, certificate number 45561, in the omnibus. Now, listeners, uh, John and I did not uh, hide from our fans at the top of a tall pillar. No. Um, We emerged from our bunker occasionally to keep in touch via social media, Hmm. great plague of our era. Hmm. You could find uh, us at Omnibus Project on just about any platform you would care to check. Uh, At Ken Jennings, at John Roderick. uh, On Twitter, at John Roderick on Instagram. Uh, You could uh, send us email, electronic communications, using the address omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. As we know, time is a flat circle. So if you put your email, your futureling email into time. If you just drop it in time. If you drop it in time, it will flat circle its way right over to us. How does it know uh, when we are? We are when it is. It's in the, it's in the email address. Yeah. There, uh, now is then and everywhere is everywhere. Everything, all, all moments exist uh, simultaneously. Yes. Everything course. is everything. So we will be aware of when you contact us, no matter what era that is. Uh, you could send us physical artifacts, although I'm not sure how the U.S. Postal Service knows which era to deliver stuff to. Mm-hmm. But if you want to send us physical media of any kind, we received correspondence at Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. You know, it does sound, having two kids climbing up on a pillar does sound pretty nice. <laughs> Man, what if you built a pillar in your own yard? <laughs> Dad's on the pillar again, Mom. <laughs> I need you to drive me to soccer. You get down from there, Ken. My wife's got a broom. Conk, like, conk, 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 I can't conk. hear you. I can't hear you. I'm on the pillar. Uh, but when John and I felt like we needed some extra attention, like when we were not, um, we, we would lower ourselves from our, from our stylites and we would uh, mingle with the, uh, with the common listener at the Futurelings Facebook group. So if you enjoy these recordings, you can find others of your kind there for lively conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think I said all the things. Uh, listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We have no idea if you're listening to this program from on top of a pillar. Above the, the roaring magma or the rising seas. We have no idea whether our underground bunker was preserved through erosion and now sits on top, top of a pillar. And that's why you are listening to this program and why you worship us as gods. But we hope and pray that that catastrophe will never come, except I actually do pray that you worship us as gods. Uh, 
if it takes a worldwide calamity to produce that outcome, it would just you, satisfies would that be a watch for my you? ego. I'm not sure. I don't want to know the day I die, but I do want an UFO to come down or someone to step out of of a time portal and say, you know, you're kind of a big deal in the future. It would be nice to know that in advance. Yeah, I feel like I'd also I'd also act better. But you don't you don't want to know when you die. You don't want somebody to say like, Ken, you die on March fourteenth. 2050 done. When your flagpole snaps in half. Yeah. No, I absolutely do not want to know that. Right. But I feel like I would live a better life when people were like, you know, knowing that you're going to be examined in the future, I would think to myself, well, then they might know, um, you know, if I gave a couple bucks to this guy at the off ramp mm-hmm. or if I yelled at my kids today, you know, they, I need to be on my best behavior. Conan O'Brien recently in New York Times said- I was just <laughs> thinking about this. <laughs> that he- he uh, he's been to Calvin Coolidge's grave and no one and he was a very popular president and no one remembers him now. He says Calvin Coolidge, Clark Gable was going to yeah. be the was the face of uh, America in the forties. When's the last time you thought about Clark Gable? <laughs> <laughs> so although I think of your uh, Jeopardy run as being something that will live in infamy um, forever and ever, it in fact will not. And certainly the music of the Long Winters will be ringing out from the great halls of the of future castles. Probably no. Neither of those things are possible. Neither of those things will happen. One day they won't even care about the Beatles or Hitler. <laughs> those are your two. Those are your two lodestones. Yeah, the Beatles and Hitler were. I mean, the my original podcast, Roderick on the Line. It was basically a podcast about the Beatles and Hitler for a long time. I think Omnibus has definitely had its Beatles and Hitler episodes. Yeah, Beatles, Hitler, R.E.M. No one's going to care about any of that stuff. What about our friend Sean's song, Flagpole Sitter? That seems to have a long afterlife. It will keep showing up as long as there are movies about the 90s. As long as there are car commercials. <laughs> and. Uh... <laughs> anyway, if this is our final word, um, then uh, we hope that you are living long and happy lives atop your plinths. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus.